The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week, we're taking you to Los Angeles, Taipei and New York. We talked to the Singaporean artist Ming Wong about taking part in the first ever exhibition of queer art in a government-run museum in Asia. For me, this exhibition is a celebration of the forward thinking of the country. We also have a special contribution from the New York-based performance artist Zardulu the Mythmaker. But before that, the second edition of the Pacific Standard Time Initiative, or PST as it's known, has just opened in California, uniting 70 different Southern Californian cultural institutions, mainly in Los Angeles but reaching as far as San Diego and Palm Springs. This latest iteration is called Pacific Standard Time LALA, the LAs being Los Angeles and Latin America, and explores the links between the City of Angels and Latino and Latin American art. I'm joined from Los Angeles by Jory Finkel, the art newspaper's LA correspondent. Hi, Jory. Hi, Ben. How are you? Good. How are you? Well, thanks. So I think we'll start from the beginning. What's the history of PST? What did part one consist of, for instance? The first edition of PST took place in 2011, and I remember it well because I was on staff at the LA Times at at the time. And really what it consists of is a set of museum exhibitions. At that time, I think it was 60 museum exhibitions focused on the same broad topic. The topic the first time around was Southern California art history from 1945 to 1980. And it was a Getty project. The Getty originated this project, also funded the project, with $12 million in funding the first time around. And really the way it came about is that the Getty had already been funding museums here, also abroad. The Getty funds a lot of conservation and restoration projects throughout the world. And they were trying to help out museums um, close to home as well by giving them grants to help preserve their oral histories. So the idea, the idea originally, and this was years before the 2011 PST actually opened, the idea originally was that you have all of these museums in LA, mostly young museums compared to London institutions, for example, that the key figures, whether they're curators or artists, are of an aging generation. They aren't going to be with us much longer. The kind of, um, basically, the early figures who started the California art scene in and around Los Angeles. And the idea was to do these oral histories. So the Getty started funding these oral histories at different museums and then realized they were onto something bigger. That in a lot of cases, the topics that were being um, researched and preserved could be turned into exhibitions. I see. So essentially, it was a research project which grew into something much more substantial. Well put. It it did. Its very DNA is in research and scholarship. On the other hand, in order to grow into something more substantial, the Getty started reconceiving and kind of reconceptualizing this project, broadening it. So by the time they actually launched in 2011, they had some pretty lofty goals in mind for PST. What were those goals? One, of course, was scholarship, to deepen scholarship and preserve scholarship in this field of California art from 1945 to 1980. Another was to drive cultural tourism, to make L.A. a mecca or destination for international tourists. And then a third goal um, that was very explicit and stated was to help promote and make more visible the local arts institutions. 
Um, I would add a fourth goal to that, which was never stated, but um, keep in mind that the Getty is the richest arts institution in the world with a $6 billion endowment and a mandate to spend some of that each year. They have to, by law, spend a certain portion of their endowment. And, And so I think a fourth goal was that the Getty wanted to spread its wealth closer to home, that the Getty had always had a reputation for being a little remote, high on the hill, interested in scholarship and research projects in in other parts of the world. This was a way for the Getty to support regional institutions. And how successful were they in those aims? Uh, It depends on which goal you look at. Scholarship, you can just look at my bookshelf here. If you were here with me, Ben, you would see that I have, you know, two full shelves devoted to PST catalogs from the first time around and a growing one for this <laughs> this time around. In terms of cultural tourism, I would say they really didn't make many gains the first time around. Either they didn't get the word out properly, marketing efforts weren't quite what people expected, or you know, the art world is a relatively small place. How many people are so dedicated to art of Los Angeles between 1945 and 1980 that they're going to get on a plane um, to see these shows? And the proof to me that the cultural tourism goal was not met is that I did some mm, kind of big data analysis where I looked at attendance numbers during the PST years versus previous years for each museum participating in PST. Even the Getty's numbers were not up in the PST years. So attendance was pretty much par for the course. That's really interesting. But, but I mean, just from the outside, one of the things that really struck me was from the, in that first edition, we were, I mean, we must come to this new uh, unveiled uh, second edition in a moment. But one of the things that really did strike me about that first edition was that, that, that what, something they did very well was to explain the diversity of the LA scene. For instance, there was a, there were a lot of shows which dealt with a Chicano uh, element of the scene. So so they so they achieved some really important um, corrections, if you like, to to histories as well as as well as some deep research, as you were saying. Oh, I agree. I thought I mean I thought it was extraordinarily important, and I think it was important for anyone in the fields. Just the question of whether or not. They drove cultural tourism, and then they came up with all of these bogus figures for economic development based on projections for increased attendance. Um, that that was my only, really almost the only fault you could find with the first PST, because it was a win-win for everybody, for the organizations participating, and then for the visitors, scholars, press, everyone who had the chance to see these shows. Now, this latest edition focuses on the, on the connections between Los Angeles and Latin America. Can you tell me how deep those connections are? Well, one of the things um, that the Getty uh, keeps on citing or reciting, one fact that they turn to frequently, is that um, almost 50% of our local population here has ancestry in Latin America um, or Mexico. and has kind of Latin roots. Um, so we're talking about a place with very, very deep ties to Latin America and a rich history with Mexico, which is, of course, right across the border. And what about the connections in terms of the art that's been made in L.A. with the art that's been made in Latin America? Well, that's an interesting question, because I think what you're asking about is, you know, there is a field of studies we call Latin American art, and that's typically separate from the field of studies we call the Latino art. 
Latino referring to uh, people of Latin American descent living in the U.S. Um, and one of the great strengths of PSTLALA is that there are shows that combine Latin American and Latino art very deliberately, like the home show at LACMA or Radical Women at the Hammer Museum, where the U.S. is one country under consideration, um, one country where artists come from, but Brazil is another country and Argentina and Venezuela and Mexico. And so you begin to see these connections. I mean, I think Marie Carmen Romero said to me that there's been nothing like a history of comparative Latin American studies before. Recent debate around the US and its relationship with Latin America has obviously been massively skewed by the election of President Trump and his rhetoric around Mexico and the idea of building a wall. Has that added extra impetus at all to the curators and researchers and academics commitment to this project? I think that's a really good question. As it happens, the project was already well, well underway by the time of Trump's election. So in some ways, it didn't change the shape of the exhibitions. It didn't change the shape of the catalogs. I think what it's changing is the shape of the programming associated with the museum shows, all the talks, all the lectures, all the artist performances, and the reception Um, I mean, we're in a different climate now in the United States than we were five years ago or even one year ago. And so uh, it has added just this incredible degree of urgency to so many of the projects. I can't tell you how many of the curators in introducing their show said, you know, when we were planning the show, it felt timely. But now it feels completely necessary and urgent because their show deals with issues like border control whether or not to build these walls or how to remove these walls, you know, immigration issues of all kinds. One of the striking elements of the looking at these programs is that you notice that there are several collaborations between institutions. It seems to me that there must be a sort of collegiate feel in Southern California that's been instigated by these initiatives. Is that the case? I really think so. I I think that's one of the great... Um, pleasures of working as an arts reporter out of Southern California is this sense of collegiality that everybody's in it together, more or less. Um, And you definitely see that with PST. The first time around, I remember the publicists, the communication specialists on staff at each museum, they didn't really know each other. Maybe one or two of them had moved around enough. They, They knew everybody. But, you know, I knew everybody. They didn't know each other. PST rolls around. They need to work together to try to get the word out. They began having monthly drinks, the 50 publicists who work at the museums here. And the museum directors, there is there is a real sense of collegiality that I think even predates PST, where, for example, I remember when Michael Govan was hired, Michael Brand was the interim director of the Getty, Annie Philbin was still director of the Hammer, and Michael Brand and Annie Philbin were the ones who threw Michael Govan a welcoming party. I don't know that that happens in London. I don't know that happens in New York. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that one of the things that that struck me is that in a way in international art histories there is a tendency perhaps to privilege new york over la uh, when it comes to talking about american art and therefore I mean, there's no doubt or from that from the outside this looks like an attempt to say 
the LA scene is much more diverse, much richer, much broader than anybody imagines from the sort of standard art histories. Definitely. And you could see that the first time around, particularly, that it was an attempt to put Los Angeles on the map, not just because we have some hotshot contemporary artists, but because we have that history, you know, that we had Bob Irwin and Judy Chicago um, and Jim Terrell, and I could go on and on all working at the same time here in Los Angeles. In your article that you wrote for the Art Newspapers website, you picked out some of the highlights that you've seen so far. Tell us about those. So yeah, last week was a bit of a whirlwind when all of these shows opened. I saw as much as I could, and I tried to pick out the works that really kind of stuck with me, made me want to see them again. And and I have to say, one of the the artist who was a complete discovery for me, uh, her name is Leticia Parente, and she's a Brazilian video artist who appears in more than one show. Um, interestingly, she I saw her work in Radical Women, the Hammer Museum show about Latin American artists, but she's also in this LAX art show about video art. She has this amazing video where she embroiders on the sole of her foot the words made in Brazil. And for me, it was so rich and it connects to so much in a extreme performance art in our own country, whether it's Chris Burden or Vito Acconci or Marina Abramovic, for that matter, but artists um, who are really testing their own body um, in order to make some kind of statement. So, so of the shows you've seen, which would you say is the most important? Um, I, I am a big fan of Radical Women. It was the show that took the longest to make. It was seven or eight years in in the making. Um, and I'm not alone. I mean, if uh, asking people I know here what they're most excited to see, they were most excited to see Radical Women, 120 artists from different countries. And I would say I only knew 15 of those artists going in. But there's something else. The more I think about the Radical Women show, I think there were Radical Women artists throughout the PST exhibitions, throughout the surveys, and even if you look at the monographs done for PST this time around, women got the biggest monographs. The MOCA show is on Ana Maria Meolina. The Santa Barbara show is Valeska Suarez. You know, I haven't run the numbers yet, but just in my experience over the last couple of months of looking at these catalogs and the last week of looking at the shows, I think that we're looking at as close to gender parity as I've ever seen in a set of exhibitions. I'm not going to say it's 50-50. It might still be 40-60. But we're looking at shows with a really heavy representation of women artists. And I have a bit of a theory as to why that happened, if you're interested. Of course. I mean, this, again, I you know, I haven't run the numbers yet. But my feeling is, is that it wasn't necessarily intentional but that this particular set of curators, the curators who are most likely interested in telling the stories of Latin American and Latino artists, are curators who are already outside of, resistant to, critical of the white European narratives that dominate art history. And in the process of promoting the Latin American and Latino artists, they end up promoting the Latin American and Latina artists, that they already were somehow primed to see, recognize, understand the importance of women's contributions. It all sounds so fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us, Joy. Oh, you're welcome, Ben. It was a pleasure. 
Now, currently on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Taipei is an exhibition of queer art, the first of its kind in Asia. The exhibition, called Spectrosynthesis, Asian LGBTQ Issues and Art Now, features around 50 works by 22 artists and follows a historic ruling in May that paves the way for Taiwan to become the first place in Asia to legalise same-sex marriage. Lisa Movius, our correspondent in China, was at the opening and spoke to the Berlin-based Singaporean artist Ming Wong, who's taking part in the show. Here are some of his thoughts. Well, then, big news was in Taiwan that they were going to perhaps be the first country in Asia that would legalize gay marriage. And that's kind of um, a big step, I think, because I know it's, you know, there have been attempts in several other countries in Asia to do that, and that hasn't happened. So Taiwan could actually be paving the way for for, uh, for other countries to follow. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an important year, and and so, for me, this exhibition is a, is a kind of a celebration of, of the, the kind of forward thinking of the country. And so, um, I'm very pleased that the show is happening and that I could be part of it. And hopefully, the show would tour to other places. And maybe the views on same-sex marriage could also follow the same way as in Taiwan, in, in other countries in Asia. I immediately agreed that I would love to be part of this historic event. And so then the, the onus was on me to come up with an idea of what it was going to be. And so I looked at Taiwanese cinema. Tsai uh, Mingliang is one of my favorite directors, of course. And I decided to do this uh, collaboration with Yu Zhengda from Taiwan, um, a really good friend, an artist that I admire. I think there's a lot of kind of crossover in our work. This was a perfect opportunity. So I, I proposed that we would do a kind of performance inspired by some of the, 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 the themes, the images, the language used in Tsai Mingliang's film. So we present ourselves as the watermelon sisters, because it's a, it's a, Tsai Mingliang used the, the watermelon in, as a symbol in a, in a few of his films, as a, as a fertility symbol, a symbol of sensuality, as a kind of... Uh, uh, a promise of life, of, of of sex, of like uh, you know the essence of life, and also images of uh, you know um, fraternity, love of people riding on scooters. <laughs> you have in Taipei it's such a kind of um, a common uh, uh, scene on the streets, and so the idea was to present these two kind of uh, gender fluid. Uh, sisters um, who would twerk their way to sexual liberation. I don't hide the fact that I'm a gay man, a gay artist. It's apparent in my work and there are queer contexts in, in which I show my work. It's not the only context. It's kind of always enmeshed with other aspects of identity. It's like... Um, like nationality, gender, race, uh, language, body, age. So it's, it's one aspect of it. But of course, uh, the queer aspect of it comes, comes, it comes with it also the kind of aesthetics that are apparent in my work. I draw a lot from um, queer performance history, um, uh, especially from a kind of like a, say, a British or American kind of a popular history, popular cultural history, um, I, I take a lot of I take a lot from those as well, but together with that, also I guess with a kind of um, um, sensibility uh, that is f- 
from being familiar with with art and music and and, and the cultural scene from Asia. It's a really different take on queerness. And I mean, for example, the idea of camp is very much a uh, something you find from, from, I think, from. I mean, it's also different in the UK and in America, but um, it's not something you find so often in, in mainland China. Not it, actually, it's camp is in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know that this. I'm always conscious now since I've been showing in different parts of the world how the how the reading of the work shifts and, and changes. So, for example, what what I felt or what m- most people would see as camp or uh, kitsch could actually be read differently in, say, mainland China, where uh, the idea of, of parody and satire is, uh, has a kind of different um, a feeling about it. And also there is maybe a, a more uh, a bigger acceptance of uh, over-decoration as part of... Uh, as, as part of the aesthetics, which could be too gaudy or too kitsch for like uh, other tastes from, say, from the, from from Europe, there are certain issues that are sensitive in Singapore, and this pertains to the kind of uh, the history of the country. So, for example, um, racial harmony and, and religious tolerance are seen as kind of the like backbones of the kind of like the identity of the country. So, issues that uh, that have to do with um, the, the, like religion uh, is kind of like sensitive. Uh, any issues that pertain to uh, uh, the rela- relationship between different ra- racial groups and different religions that's seen as a kind of a, a sensitive issue. Um, issues to do with like alternative lifestyles could also be seen as a kind of um, an issue. So, for example, like homosexuality is one of as a as a kind of alternative lifestyle is seen as a possible hot uh, sensitive point. But then again, there's been a lot of debate about this ongoing for the past years. There's it, there's been a very big visible kind of like um, uh, push uh, to kind of like I'm talking. I'm thinking of for example, there's there's the annual pink dot. Um, kind of event in Singapore where you know they people gather wearing pink in, in a public park to kind of like uh, show their kind of solidarity with and for uh, uh, gay and queer and LGBT communities. And uh, I mean, in this day and age, you know, you can't run away from the fact that you know it's part of society. Uh, it's the only question is how much the government is willing to kind of officially acknowledge this and so this is still an ongoing kind of uh, struggle but it's also interesting that there is still a kind of fight to be uh, fought and uh, it's it brings for me it kind of actually brings people together and actually kind of like uh, forces one to kind of like uh, not take things for granted I'm I'm kind of uh, kind of contrasting this with say being in Berlin where Everything seemingly is so permissive that every anything goes, and like uh, you know, there's no there's no censorship or there's, there's nothing taboo. And uh, but of course, there always is something. There's always issues which are kind of like uh, um, suppressed and which might not be apparent to most people. And and it takes really an outsider, an artist, to actually point this out to them. So. For example, certain things to do, that deal with again, like uh, integration uh, in 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 the in the society with say uh, ethnic minorities. Like there's still problems with um, the second and third generation of Turkish immigrants of of how they are integrated into society. There's always that is still a problem. And 
uh, of course now when the doors are open to the refugees um, and, and we have a million pouring in and, and uh, seeking asylum that has awakened a lot of uh, kind of like a hidden uh, feelings that, that you know that one didn't notice before but now is given a voice almost of a, some, some kind of visibility when the people are kind of coming together to, to, to voice their discontent or their fear or their kind of xenophobia and so you know it, it's never a, there's never a perfect place it's, 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 it's really um, issues are always come, coming and going and uh, it's kind of like a, it's always a bubbling pot and it's the job of artists to kind of like uh, uh, have their feelers out and be able to kind of like uh, direct people's attention to these kind of um, issues just just beneath the surface. I think Taiwan is is right now it's a really interesting place to, to be in. The situation is kind of a, for me as an artist, it's 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 a, a lot of issues kind of uh, at stake at the moment, you know, its relationship with mainland China and what's going to happen with the future. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been doing a lot of research in Hong Kong too. And of course, you know, um, Hong Kong has its own kind of like uh, issues with the, the long arm of China and what and how is that going to be uh, affecting in, in Taiwan? If, if, if it does, it probably will be in the future what's that what's that going to be and what what has that what does that do to the identity of the country and i know taiwan has kind of like a situation where they have to kind of struggle to be recognized as a as an independent nation and so um, i think right now it's kind of a, it's an is at an interesting moment to see what's you know, to see what to see where the forces of the world are turning Spectrosynthesis continues until the 9th of November. Zardulu the Mythmaker is a performance artist behind some of the internet's most popular viral stories. A rat taking a selfie on the New York subway, a three-eyed fish caught in the Gowanus Canal. These fabricated situations aim to bring fantasy into the real world, to inject mythological meaning into everyday life. Here, especially for the Art Newspaper Weekly podcast, she takes a look at another viral video and tells us what message could be gleaned from it. The wondrous happenings of the world were once considered omens, symbolic messages from the gods that required our imaginative interpretation. While we continue to experience them today, they've been stripped of their significance and are spoken of in purely rational terms. To most, they're the subject of viral photographs, videos, and stories. To me, they're much more. As I continue the divinatory traditions of our ancestors, gathering information from them, viewing the world through them, and following their guidance. One such video recently came to my attention. It shows a chaotic scene. An Irish man named Denny struggles to catch a bat with a towel as it circles round and round his kitchen, while the cameraman excitedly narrates the unfolding events. In the end, Denny catches the bat, releasing it outside, just as the family dog enters the room and urinates on the floor. This encounter is worth more than a few laughs. 
it's worth our careful consideration, for there is no doubt that this is an omen. I have called upon the ineffable energies of the universe to enlighten my perception of this video, to reveal its true nature, and I have had a vision. A vision of the Menaides, the daughters of the ancient Greek king. As mythology teaches us, Dionysus and his worshippers would put on festivals, where they engaged in ritual wine drinking and frenzied dancing, all to lower their inhibitions and free themselves from the constraints of society. During one such festival, the Menaides decided to stay home and continue their usual routines, thus profaning the rituals. Angered, Dionysus changed them forever into bats. From then on, bats reminded the ancient Greeks to honor the god Dionysus. The viral video of Denny chasing the bat is called for all of us to participate in our own Dionysian rituals, to go out, drink wine, and dance. I encourage you to do so this weekend, responsibly of course. For those like me who prefer a more traditional experience, I recommend fashioning a thyrsus, a staff with a pine cone on top, and drinking from a cantharos, a large cup with two handles. While I believe the dog urinating in Denny's kitchen is significant, it is unnecessary to incorporate this into your ritual, but if you feel you must, you must. I am Zardulu. Blessed be. Felisa Movis' full report on the LGBTQ show in Taiwan, pick up a copy of the art newspaper's October print edition. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe, and you can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper. <laughs>